So I got a question for you. When was the last time you made a really good new friend, you know, as a grown-up, like the kind that actually knows you, not just online, the real you? Well, it turns out it's actually not so easy to create those kinds of friendships, but it's also really important in our ability to live good lives, especially during challenging times. So my guest today, Kat Velos, she's here to help. She earns her living as a UX designer, and that means Kat figures out how to make experiences as easy and organic as humanly possible to step into. And she applied her unique genius to everything from giant apps, platforms, and technology, things like Slack and Pandora on a mass scale, all the way to local face-to-face gatherings, community building, and most recently to examining and tackling the quest to form deep friendships, approaching it as a design problem. So she goes deep into her journey of discovery in her really wonderful new book, We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships, which I loved and learned so much from. And Kat has been featured in Forbes and Fast Company for her work as the founder of Bay Area Black Designers, which is a professional development community for black designers and UX researchers. And over the years, you know, really over the decades, she's created, run, and mentored a variety of communities focused on everything from spoken word poetry to photography to digital design to authentic connection and friendship. Her most recent are Better Than Small Talk and Connection Club, which helps people really build community with each other as they also foster stronger friendships through the art of letter writing, which is super cool. I wanted to go deeper into Kat's, her lens, her ideas and processes, and also explore them both in the context of making real deep friendships as adults and cultivating relationships and community, maybe even rising to that level of chosen family, both with people who see and move through the world in similar ways to us, but also with people who are not like us and exploring how to embrace those relationships and build deep bonds of trust and friendship, especially in this day and age. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's a jumping off point that I think is um, fascinating that I, I absolutely have to know because I, I can't imagine there are many other people with your name, but it sounds like you came out with a hip hop math CD called Musiplication in 2008. And I have to know about this. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, it was a project from deep uh, in the ice ages there. Because at that time, I, so I had left a job as an art director and graphic designer um, working for a news magazine. And I, I left because I wanted to make a bigger difference in the world. And one of the ways I did that was by like quitting my job and joining AmeriCorps and working in communities, doing national service. And one of my assignments was working in an elementary school, helping kids who were falling behind in math. And there was a number of students I worked with, but two who really, really were like, oh, like deep in my heart were these twins. And they really just struggled with math. Like they could not learn their times tables. It was really, really hard. Yet they knew every single lyric to every Beyonce song that they heard. And I was like, clearly they're capable of memorizing things. <laughs> and I tried to find music for them. And I tried to find like, all I could find was like schoolhouse rock stuff from the 70s. And they were like, Miss Cat, what? <laughs> and so I had many years experience as a spoken word poet and a, a lot of friends who were musicians and DJs. And one of them had previously been a kindergarten art teacher. And together we made an album of times tables just to make music that could help kids memorize this very important life skill that would feel like cool and fun. And so that is why that came out. I worked with my kids using it and I you know, loved sharing that as a resource for other people who wanted to make math less intimidating for kids. And that's also really close to my heart because when I was a kid, I was that kid who struggled with math and felt really intimidated by it. And so it was a project. I was really thrilled about it. It was also like something aside from my day job. It was not something I like talked to a lot of people about, but it had a really beautiful reception when we released it. And I'm really happy that I was able to help a lot of kids enjoy math in the process. I love that. Um, and I, I've always wondered, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a kid who grew up of, of uh, you know, I was, I'm that age where um, multiplication rock and all of that stuff, schoolhouse rock was actually part of my upbringing and I, I loved it. And, and um, as soon as I saw that you had done that, I'm like, why is there not more of this right now? I mean, because I'm 55 and I can remember the lyric to every song that I knew when I was a teenager, you know, not because I was forced to learn it, but just because it was presented in a way where it just got into my neural grooves and never left. Mm -hmm. And that was what Schoolhouse Rock did originally. And, but there really, there had, I mean, at least not to my knowledge, you're probably more up on it than me. I don't think there's been a meaningful sort of like um, newer version of something like that for kids, really. Has there, I mean, other than musiplication from the great Cat Vellas. Oh, well, thank you. There are other things that are really cool. Like in the process, I heard about these two guys who were making uh, kind of like history and like social studies mm. uh, stuff. And then lately I found out about another woman. I think her name is Raven, the science maven. And she you know, talks about science and, I, and she does like hip hop and it's really fun and super cool. And I think I'm a 
big nerd. And so <laughs> I think things like this are super cool. Um, and, and so there's like things out there and it makes me happy that there are more adults who are trying to make this stuff more relevant and contemporary for kids today. Yeah, no, I love that too. You mentioned that you were um, heavily into the spoken word world also. So was that something that kind of emerged in the college years or tell me more about this? It was um, right around the end of college. And then for a few years after that, I was living in a town that had a really cool arts community in terms of like visual art, um, certainly music, but there wasn't anything for the literary community. And I was driving about an hour a week, one way to go to different poetry readings and spoken word uh, events that were happening in Jacksonville, which was an hour away. I was in St. Augustine at the time. And I you know, really enjoyed it. I love the community. I love that as a type of expression at that time in my life. I was just like, like my dreams, my thoughts, my like grocery lists were all like in poetry form. And so I created, yeah, a spoken word community there in my town. And it was something I held every other week for four years. And it was just my primary mode of creative expression. And we pulled together a beautiful community. And it was just something really special to me at that time in my life in my 20s. And it was something I look back on fondly, even though it's not necessarily something that's really present in my life today. Yeah. I mean, it's the way that you just, um, I mean, I can see your face as you're saying that. And, and um, that there is a, almost a sense of forlorning as you just sort of like shared that last part that is not really all that present in your life today. Yeah. For me today, the when I do write poems, which is much less frequently, they're more quiet and introspective and shorter, and they're not performative. There was always a little bit of a tension for me with spoken word community because while it is both this like incredibly engaging, like rhythmic, like active form of communication and dialogue with an audience, there was also a part of it that would get complicated for me around the performative aspect. So very near to that was slam poetry, where it's like judged and ranked and someone tries to win. And I did not like that aspect. I did not like the creative judging, performing, winning when it came to expression. So that was the part of it where I was like, uh, I, I'm not in it for that kind of thing. And so I would just kind of hover on the edge of it and stay on the side where it's like, it's about encouraging each other. It's about supporting each other and being in creative community together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, I'm a huge fan of spoken word and there have been times where I, I sort of see and, and I'm, I've become friends with, and we've actually had a number of sort of like leading voices on the show over the years. And I'm mes- absolutely mesmerized when it is done really beautifully. It just kind of like, it bypasses all the defenses and all the shields and it just goes straight into your heart. But I've also been really, I've become aware of this. I, I feel like sometimes there's this um, tension between, I guess what you were describing as the performative aspect of it and the substance underneath it. Mm-hmm. The depth of the, the lyrics and the storytelling um, versus the performative side. And I wonder sometimes whether that's actually a tension that exists within the entire community. Mm. I don't know. I mean, some people really, really did seem drawn to like the heavily performative. In some ways it was formulaic, you know, and I would feel this tension about like, oh, I don't just want to like do something that's formulaic. But other people really like thrived in that and like would, you know, test the boundaries of it and experiment with it in different ways. And there was also like on a personal level, there was a part of it where it, I questioned how much I wanted to keep doing it when I could feel the change in my pen when I was writing for myself versus when I was writing for an audience. Yeah. I mean, but I wonder if that's limited to spoken word or if that is limited to anything where you feel just 
in, you know, intrinsically called to, to develop a craft and to creative expression where it also is something that can be valued and sometimes even paid for on a career standpoint from others. There's always that dynamic, right? It's sort of like, I think that that's why so many people in the world of entertainment end up doing, you know, with the, the one for me, one for the studio model at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way to keep it clean, you know, keep it balanced. Yeah. Um, as you were speaking, what popped into my head really quickly too, is in a very past life, I was a yoga teacher for seven years. And I remember in my very early days, I was on retreat with this leading voice and doing a, this intensive training. And there were a hundred something of us in the room and he would just start to call on any of us to just step out and teach the group of a hundred at any random time. And he called on me to step out. Um, and I was actually the first one he called on. And I went out and I did my you know, like three minute shtick and I stepped back in with the rest of the class and he just looked at me. He's like, let's show. And immediately I got what he was saying because I'm an introvert and I stepped almost into another personality and said, let me just put on a show. So I kind of don't really have to be personally present. And he was like, mm, no, that's not what it's about. Wow. Yeah. How did that change the way that you taught? Did you ever step back into that personality or did you always, were you able to stay centered with yourself? It landed first as um, somewhat offensive, <laughs> but also at the same time true. You know, I was like offensive only because I was in a room of a hundred something largely strangers and I just felt like, wow. Um, but also I knew it was right, you know, um, and it did, it really changed not just the way I taught you over th for the next seven years, but the way I carry myself, I think, through the world and and build relationships um it you know this is this is almost two decades later now we're having this conversation and it's still in my mind so wow. it stayed with me um your when you graduate so this was all happening around st augustine where i know um you went to school that's where you got your degree in design um when you step out into the world as sort of like quote newly minted designer you entered in a, a really interesting time too where so much tech was exploding. Um, the app world was just really sort of like exploding in a lot of different ways. But you pretty soon made this interesting decision to move into UX or user experience side of things, which I, I wonder back then, what was the drive behind that? Because, because it seemed like all the kids who wanted to do the sexy stuff were doing the non-UX stuff. They wanted to be on the flash side and the visual and, and like graphic side of things. Whereas the user experience side, which is really about how do we navigate this in a way that is easeful and useful and valuable, so important, so powerful. But I think now it's sort of like finding its day in the sun, but um, it wasn't back then when you said, this is what I want to do. Well, it was... So in terms of like the chronology in my journey, it was, you know, graphic design first. And then, like I said, I took a, a couple of years off and did AmeriCorps. I wanted to be of service to the world, like a hundred percent every single day, all day long. And in that journey, I ended up working for a couple of nonprofits thereafter where I was doing facilitation work and designing for in real life experiences, designing for, you know, transformation, growth, like personal development, social change, and bringing people in for experiences, whether they were an hour long or 10 days long, that we're going to deliver on that. And so when I came back to wanting to do, you know, quote unquote design 
after that, it was with all of that experience and perspective around designing for people and designing for the world. And so user experience design was just really a blend of the experience that I developed like as a facilitator and as a designer of real life experiences, along with the background in graphic design. So it was really that combination that felt like the marriage of my skill levels and my passions and the things that the world was needing. And so, yeah, that's how those those came together. Yeah. And I realized that I just made a mistake that I'm so aware of. Um, and it's okay. So many people, I think, look at design as, quote, graphic design. I'm somebody who has been fascinated with design thinking and human-centered design, um, which is a much more zoomed out lens, which is really what you're talking about, which is the notion of looking at the world as a series of design challenges, effectively. You know, like anything that involves a human being having to navigate the world, designers largely are involved, whether you call yourself a designer or not, in helping to figure out what that experience looks like. And it sounds like that's really where your heart ended up focusing. Yeah. Hmm. So when you step back into that world and you start to really explore things, also somewhere along the way here, you end up making a move over to uh, the Bay Area which can be this incredibly buzzy place with lots of people and so much creativity. But I guess you had this really interesting sort of um, experience of a lot of excitement, a lot of opportunity, and also not necessarily the easiest place to really find deep friends and build community. Mm -hmm. It was surprising to me because I've moved around a number of times in my adulthood and even though I'm an introvert, I'm not shy. And so I never really had a hard time making friends before. And when I came to the Bay Area, I was always, you know, meeting cool people at lots of events and meetups and gatherings and things of that nature. But meeting people is different than actually forming deep, meaningful friendships. And as an introvert, it's actually quite exhausting to be constantly meeting new people and not getting to a deeper place with them. And so it was confusing honestly. And it was surprising. And it, even though it was challenging as well, it ended up being the spark for this like whole journey that I'm on now and that I've been on for the last several years. And it's actually been the source of like really beautiful transformation. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like also there are, um, on the one hand, there were some really unique circumstances that exist in the Bay Area. But also when you really start to dive into it, um, a lot of those things just exist in everyday life for a lot of people, but especially there because it's known as being a really transient area. So a lot of people go there for work-based reasons and they stay for a relatively short amount of times, right? What were some of the other sort of qualities that made that experience sort of like uniquely challenging in terms of just really finding true friends and community? Well, definitely the transiency is a big thing. A lot of folks, as you mentioned, they come here for a specific reason. They have a couple of years of that thing and then they're out and they leave either because the cost of living or they never intended to stay here or there's other places they want to go, as well as this is a place that is marked by having a very high concentration of people who are focused on their careers. And because of that, you know, whatever sort of like workaholism or hustle culture or whatever the things are that, you know, around the country people experience, it's like on steroids in the Bay Area. <laughs> and so uh, people's focus on, you know, climbing the ladder, building their profession, building their, you know, accomplishments in the world, it, it creates a lot of innovation, obviously, like so many amazing things come out of here. 
And it means that a lot of people don't have their focus on necessarily cultivating community or like friendships because they're like, oh, I got to go to work. Oh, I got to do this thing. Oh, I'm over here. I'm always on the run. I'm busy. I'm booked 10 weeks out. And so people are less available for the, the quieter moments or the spontaneous moments and the things that ultimately help foster closeness and intimacy. Yeah. And, you know, and along with that, I have to say that because there is such a high concentration of really interesting people and amazing like projects and art and creativity and innovation that there's almost like a glut of cool things. So there's this glut of distraction that makes, uh, if you have shiny object syndrome, like you're going to be all over the place here and probably similarly in New York city or like other big cities that have a lot of really amazing things going on. And when people's attention is constantly being pulled this way and that way and this way and that way, it's like, if you're just like a new friend in town and you're like, Hey, remember me? We met at that potluck three weeks ago. Like, do you want to get coffee? It's to get the attention and the focus of someone is much more difficult. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it also seems that that particular area of the country draws a lot of people who are sort of like hyper-creative professionals and also probably much more comfortable spending more time in their internal lives. Yes. Which which I got, have to imagine also just kind of like compounds the issue to a certain extent. Yes. Um, one of the more interesting things I found in the research for my first book had to do with uh, an amazing data analysis project that Richard Florida and a whole bunch of uh, data analysts did where they looked at psychology's big five personality traits and looked at the clusters of where they land in the country. And uh, introversion, as you're describing, is also clustered here in this place as well. So people are more focused and can spend a lot of time on their own and uh, in a creative space or in a reflective space and feel completely fine up for a long time that way, as opposed to like a more extroverted community or, or cluster of personalities. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like people move to different places without necessarily thinking, oh, like, oh, this is the place where introverts are safe and valued and I can just be me into my thing. <laughs> but like, they don't, def I think we don't, th I'm, I'm saying we now because that's me. Um, let's, uh, you know, we don't think it through that way. We just go because something feels more easeful about it. But it also, some of those things that allow it to feel more easeful also probably simultaneously foster a sense of, you know, solitude on the positive, but um, isolation in the negative, which can lead to, a lot of unhappiness. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You use this term platonic longing that I thought was fascinating. Tell me more about it. So this came out of a lot of the research and interviews I had with people about their friendships. Because like I said, I, I got kind of fascinated with the topic of friendship when I started having difficulty with it here. And being a curious person, I would ask other people, like, what are what is your experience of community like? What is your experience of friendship like? And over and over, there was this very nuanced description that people were giving for what they were experiencing and feeling. And it wasn't always loneliness, even though, you know, we're in a loneliness epidemic. There's a lot of that in our community in America. But people didn't always feel lonely because they had, say, coworkers that they got along with, or they had a roommate that they got along with, or they were in a relationship. But when they were craving for really intimate friendship, feeling safe, feeling heard and seen, feeling comfortable sharing anything, whether it's a happy day or an angry day, and knowing that they would be accepted and and still loved and held by that friend, or feeling cared about in a time of need. Like this was a very, very specific ache. This was an unmet need and and a hunger for a specific type of connection that was missing. And it was the friendship connection, which is why I call it platonic longing. So it's different than, you know, we know unrequited longing, which is always just given a romantic frame, this, you know, this longing for a partner or a lover or whatever. And what was here was this longing for like a really, really deep friendship love. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you use the word friendship love. I remember a couple of years back doing some research on love and seeing it sort of deconstructed into these four types of love. There was compassionate love, which is um, the one that sort of allows you to feel empathy and very often inspires altruism. There was romantic love, which is what most of us think about when we talk about love. There was attachment love, which is simply just this really long-term dynamic. And then there was this, there was companionate love. But I don't think most people think about that companionate slash, you know, like friendship as love, but it really is. And, and it seems like, you know, when I hear platonic longing, what I hear is almost like the precursor is that we haven't quite accepted the fact that real friendship is about love rather than just like, you know, like kind of hanging out and doing fun things and shared interests. And it, it's that deeper, genuine love that we're really longing for. Because I think so many of us don't actually acknowledge that that is in fact a quality of genuine friendship because it's a little bit scary, I think. Yeah. I mean, when we look at the culture that we're in, there's so much emphasis and validation for wanting, say, a romantic love or wanting to have a partnership. And there's almost this shame or embarrassment about wanting a best friend or admitting that you don't have the kind of intimate friendships or close friendships that you really want. And I think that's really telling. There's something there that I think needs healing in our society and that I sincerely hope we can transform so that people can feel just as comfortable saying like, yeah, I'm looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend as they're saying like, yeah, I'm looking for my bestie or I'm looking for a close friend, you know, and to understand that just as much as we crave that love to come from another and we have that love to give to another, that we, it, the same is true and friendship, and that it should be safe and acceptable and comfortable to admit that that is an extremely, extremely valuable source of love in our lives. Yeah, I so agree. We had um, Mia Birdsong on the podcast last year who wrote so beautifully about the notion of family and really focusing on the idea of chosen family, which I think is really similar to what we're talking yes. about, right? And how for many generations, it was actually a pretty normal thing that, you know, your quote chosen family, you didn't call it chosen family. It's a fairly modern term, but you're, you're the people you felt as family, as deep friendship, love slash family went way beyond your biological family. And it was just a part of your life and your community. And yet we've so pulled away from that, that it feels like, you know, it really is, there's a moment for a reclamation of that notion that I think a lot of people are are um, starting to really re-examine it and, and hopefully step into to a certain extent. I hope so. I hope so. Because the more access we have to different types of relationship for that kind of connection, the less fragile our lives are and the less fragile our society is as well. Mm. And we need less fragility right now as we are smack in the middle of a classic anti-fragile moment. <laughs> you, I mean, it's interesting because you also, um, so this starts as a personal issue for you. This is like, okay, so what's happening with me? your um, design mind, like human-centered, it sort of like zooms a lens. It sounds like zooms a lens out and says, huh, this can't just be about me. Let me like really dive into this and start to see like what's going on. I want to talk about some of the things that you discovered. and But also, I guess part of your research project revealed that this in fact is not just about you. Like the statistics on adult friendship and loneliness, in, especially in the US, are kind of horrifying right now. <laughs> Yeah, they really, really are. And even in the short time that I was working on my book and researching this topic so deeply, 
it was shocking to me how quickly I would see the stats changed in the process of writing the book. Like I had to go back and like update the stats because they were getting worse. And I was like, what is happening? This is not okay for how many people feel like nobody understands them. How many people feel like they have no one to turn to in a time of need? How many people feel like they don't have the number of friends that they want in their life? Or how many people like haven't made a new friend in however many years? And it was really moving and really motivating as well, you know, and when I started out that project, one of the things I've learned as a user researcher and someone who's just generally curious about people all the time is that whenever one person's having a problem, they're usually not the only one, you know? When I have a friend who describes like, oh, I can never figure out how to like use this website or this thing always confuses me. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with you. It has to do with the way that thing was designed. <laughs> and you're probably not the only one. And I've seen this over and over again. And so as I followed that thread of curiosity to what does this mean? What does friendship look like for people? What does connection look like for people? And the more I heard people saying over and over that it was not, say, meeting their satisfaction level or exceeding <laughs> their satisfaction level. To me, it was just like any other usability issue where it's like, can we think about how to design more closeness, how we think about how to design better relationships and friendships and not from a place of like design, like, oh, I'm like manipulating this thing and like forcing it to be a certain way. But it's like with intentionality, because that's what I believe design is, is the art of intentionality and bringing that purpose and intention to creating a certain desired outcome. When we're kids, maybe our friendships just happen. But in adulthood, there's way too many like distractions and responsibilities and challenges. And if you don't bring any intention, it's not just going to magically happen. And so that's where um, my curiosity led me. And what I'm hoping to draw people into is understanding that like there actually is some control that you have here. There is a way to be intentional in how you create it and what you bring into your life and what you bring into your friendships in that way. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's interesting when you compare it to um, how we form friendships when we were kids, you know, because the first you know, thing is, well, you know, it just kind of happens. But when you really, I guess, think about it, there are playpens and guardrails and, you know, like rules of the playground and things that are constructed largely just, you know, like to have you interacting and co-creating and but when we're kids, we generally don't create those. We're sort of put into them. And maybe we take it for advantage that those are really, 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 really important in our ability to create those friendships. And when they go away as adults, and even the things that you used to provide them as adults, you know, like a lot of times in work, which doesn't often happen now, in uh, you know, like private organizations or the Rotary Club or bowling leagues or or, you know, like barbecues or whatever it may be. So many of those things are going away. The structures that would allow us to step into that dynamic, it makes sense that, you know, we would have to do something intentionally to recreate those later mm -hmm. in life. But that intentional part um, doesn't necessarily come easily. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And as you were describing, you know, the childhood playpen or like you show up in this place and you, you just do it this way what I was thinking of in that moment was like social media. <laughs> it's like, that's the adult playpen where there are certain rules of engagement and there are certain guardrails that are like, oh, we want you to do it this way and, and interact that way. Whereas like, is that actually designed for the best of human connection and potential? I'm not anti-social media. There's a lot of good things about it, but wow. What if we considered that that was actually the adult playpen or like the, the playground or like that's where you spend your time with your 
quote unquote friends. Yeah, it's on the one hand fascinating, the other hand terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> right? because, oh, yeah. Because when we think about, you know, well, who is designing the playpen here? And what are their goals? You know, like their their goals are they're some of the smartest people in the world. And the goal is fundamentally to keep you consuming for as long as humanly possible. You know, and is that goal aligned or directly in conflict with the, you know, the goals of friendship, you know, like trust and vulnerability and safety and and disclosure? You know, because a lot of times I feel like when people feel like that's the place for them to do it, then they get punished really quickly. <laughs> mm, yeah. We're not really taught how to do these things in adulthood. You know, in our growing up, unless you're lucky enough to go to a super progressive like Montessori school or something, like there's no education about how to navigate these things. Like how do you build trust? How do you demonstrate commitment? How do you handle conflict resolution? Knowing that like things are not going to go perfect all the time. You know, people will disappoint us. We are going to disappoint people. Sometimes our communication will be great and other times it's going to be real crappy, you know, but how do we fix these problems and how do we create real durable friendships and relationships is not something that we're taught. And unless somebody gets inspired to go to therapy or read a bunch of self-help books or is lucky enough to have people in their life who are incredibly skilled demonstrators of these skills and can role model that for them, a lot of people are just stuck, you know, figuring it out on their own or just feeling confused about like, how do we do this? And how do I bring this up in a room full of other people when I don't know how they feel about it? Or will I look like the weirdo, you know, if I say the thing and people like, uh, whatever. So it's so important that we make it acceptable to talk about and make it a shame-free experience to bring up and to express and to say like, I'm learning and growing and I'm messing up and how are you guys doing? And can we work on this together and let that be okay? Yeah. I feel like it's, it's, I so agree. And I feel like so often, um, we look at people who seem to just make friends everywhere they go. And we're kind of like, there are the haves and the have nots. Like there are the people that just, you either know how to do it and everyone gravitates you or you don't. It's not a skill, you know, it's not something that you create. Whereas in fact, it's not true at all. Um, you have this interesting other kind of fascinating concept, um, which kind of speaks to what we're talking about, the notion of hydroponic friendship you know, with these elements of compatibility and frequency and commitment and proximity. And I think these are sort of like the, some of the, some of those skills or some of the conditions. Tell me more about this. So I'm a gardener and for many years, as I've trained and learned more about plants, it's really taken over my metaphors that I use to process life. <laughs> and one of the things that was apparent to me uh, when I was coming across some of the research about how many hours it takes to make a close friend. One of the studies was saying that it takes 200 hours Oof. to make a friend, to go from a stranger to really feel like a close friend. And the study was done with college students who had access to each other on a much more you know frequent basis than most typical working adults. And I was like, wow. I was like, how am I going to share this without anybody feeling completely demotivated or like deflated when they hear that because they're like, where am I going to get 200 hours from? And the metaphor that came to my mind was around hydroponics because, you know, 
we know now that you can grow a plant in water without soil. But when that thought was first introduced, you know, it was like laughable. People were like, how on earth could you grow a plant without soil? That's crazy. Like you should never say that again. That's bananas. Nobody will ever do that. But of course it's true and it works. And the way it works is because you give the plant the nutrients that it might've otherwise absorbed from the soil. You just put it in the water and then it grows. And you give it light and, of course, the other things it needs. And so the metaphor in my mind was in the absence of abundant time, which is what most adults feel like they're lacking to put into their friendships, and that 200 hours is going to be kind of freaky and scary for them. In the absence of that much time, what could we do to create a, a close friendship instead? And hydroponic friendship is the notion that if you're short on time, you can amp up or feed your plant, right, these nutrients that it needs uh, instead. And so those are experiences of vulnerability and intimacy and like shared experiences and the things that are also shown in research to help people bond and feel a sense of belonging with each other. And if you purposely increase those things in a condensed amount of time, people can get closer quicker. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it as a facilitator at summer camps. I've seen it as a facilitator at adult programs, where when you're in a containerized space, that's like, hey, this is our social contract. This is how we're going to be together for this amount of time. This is how we'll share. This is how we'll accept, you know, communicate, et cetera. People can. They get a lot closer, a lot quicker. And it's always this kind of like time warp, like mind-bending experience to be in a situation like that where you're talking to somebody and you're like, wow, after a few hours, you feel like you've known them for 10 years. And I've seen this happen facilitating spaces that are intentional around how we use conversation and like, what are the things that we talk about and how do we connect? And because I'd seen it happen over and over again in facilitated spaces, this is why I believe that it's possible in friendship as well. If people bring that same intention and mutual agreement around how we will contribute to each other in this, you know, thing we're doing together um, and then build a friendship more quickly. Yeah, we, we've seen this happen also. Um, I got really fascinated, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. There was a modern love piece in uh, the New York Times that exploded, went massively viral by Mandy Lynn, where she discovered these, what are now known as the 36 questions. So researcher Arthur Ahrens out of Stony Brook University wanted to see if he could cultivate real intense intimacy between perfect strangers in a remarkably short period of time. So he you know, manufactures these 36 questions that are designed in three sets of 12 that kind of progressively step you into vulnerability and revealing more. And then at the end of it, you gaze into each other's eyes. I think it was for four minutes. And I was fascinated because the research showed, as soon as I read the story, then I went and actually looked up all the research and I read all the, the studies. And it showed that people who had done that, college students who were total strangers before, felt after like an hour with this person that they knew them or they knew each other more deeply and were had stronger friendships than people they had known for years. That's after an hour with just the right conditions and the right prompts, which is kind of mind-blowing when you really think about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It says a lot about the power inherent in purposeful interaction. Yeah. We actually, um, I am being a geek and a sort of like a, a human designer myself. I wanted to see if this would actually help us with some of the projects that we were working on, similar to what like you've done with all the community and, and the facilitation building. 
we used to take people on retreats or like a five-day retreat in Costa Rica. And what we did, we split them into groups and then we would feed them variants of those questions at night where they were just sitting around a circle around a fire. And the speed and the depth of connection was stunning. And then for five years, we ran this summer camp and, you know, Camp GLP, an adult summer camp. And I think we really understood by then that so many adults are so awkward and uncomfortable around the idea of stepping into a new setting and not having, as you described, sort of like being given the the skills of this is how I make a new friend as a grown up. That we created a whole bunch of experiences. You know, we created the container and the ethos and the safety, and then we said within that we're going to give you experiences to do from the moment that you get here that give you permission to approach strangers and ask them a set of questions. And it really is, I think, not only is it amazing how quickly that can happen, but to see what happens to people when it does as adults is really breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen this happen so many times, Jonathan. You know, when I was a facilitator, one of the warm-up activities we used to do was a micro version of what you're describing there called milling, where people just walk around a space and you pair them periodically to answer questions that increase in intimacy and self-disclosure from very light to something a little bit more meaningful than something that's kind of close to the heart. And it's like a 15-minute activity that seriously, in the same way, people would come in as strangers and then like before you're even halfway into a program, they feel like they've made a new friend that they can't wait to hang out with again. They want to trade phone numbers. And then I built out from there like this experience called Better Than Small Talk because I struggle with small talk. As an introvert, I don't like it. And so creating like an evening experience based on that kind of interaction um, was some one of the other experiments I did when I came to the Bay Area because I was like, I'm sure I'm not the only one who doesn't like small talk. So if that's you, like raise your hand, like come in this room and know that here you are free from that and you'll be provided with like hundreds of alternatives and a willing set of people who are also bought in to saying like, let's be together in a different way. Like let's have a different kind of conversation. And when you create a gathering with that kind of purpose and that mutual intention, and a set of tools to help, right? So the questions, the guides, the invitation, magic can happen. It really can. Yeah. I've seen it over and over again. And people self-select, right? If you're really clear about the intention and you know the quote rules of the game or rules of engagement or and and you offer the prompts, you know, by the time people show up to participate in that, they've already opted in to a certain extent to being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and to saying, I don't know. I don't really know how to do this. And I also, but I, I mean, I think what's even more stunning to me is they're also kind of saying I'm lonely because it's, I have to imagine it's part of why you're showing up, which is a profound act of vulnerability to do that before you even know who else is going to be there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's also this act of, I think, hope you know, of believing that like, even if you feel lonely or even if you've lived here for two, three years and don't feel like you have your people yet or your friends yet. It's an act of hope to say, you know, I haven't given up yet. I'm still going to put myself out there and I'm still going to try. And I find that incredibly just inspiring and really motivating to keep doing the work and to keep creating opportunities for people to step into when they say they're willing to step out. Mm, yeah. I love the hope part of that because it is, it's, I, I think it, it, there's this sense, I think, after a while to just 
drop into a sense of futility. Like, oh, this is just what it's like to be a grown up. Like we don't get to have that level of friendship or that level of community, that level of chosen family. Like as adults, it's just, it, you know, it was great while it was there as a kid, but that's not what being a grown up is about. But in fact, it is. And that sense of hope, that possibility, right? That, well, maybe this can sustain for life. You know, maybe I can recreate it in all its different, you know, versions as I move through all the different stages of my own life. Yeah, that is that is an act of profound hope. <laughs> I hope that it'll be true in my life. I hope that I'll continue to make deep friendships over the decades and will continue to experience new things with really different kinds of people and to be surprised and to be challenged and to be pushed to grow and to continually evolve, you know, and to say, you know, the best years of our life are not in the past. The best friendships of our life don't exist in some like sepia toned photo from the past, you know, like they can still be created today and they can still be created tomorrow. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm curious now, when um, 
when you put together the very first better than small talk gathering, where this is you you had done a ton of facilitation and worked in community before that. But when you did this one thing with this intention and it was like this expressed, you know, vision, that first night, that first day, whatever it was, what was that very first experience like for you and those who who came? It was really joyful, honestly. It I love experiments and I love social experiments and just the opportunity to be in a space where you can be surprised or where you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Like even if you have a plan, it's like in pencil, you know, it's not chiseled in stone. And so there's something really delightful to me about creating spaces for people to come into where they also feel that sense of surprise and where they also have that curiosity and that sense of play and experimentation. And so on a certain level, because of the experience I've had as a facilitator and convener of spaces, I have a, a certain sense of trust in how it will go. And also a sense of trust that, you know, if something unexpected happens or kind of goes sideways, like I can probably like figure this out, you know, it'll be okay. (laughs) And I remember like in the room, like putting up the cards and hanging the questions and hanging the like quotes from people and writing the essay that was going to serve as the jumping off point for the group discussion we were going to have. And like going through the list of the people who applied to come and like reading each and every one of their hopes for coming and what why they wanted to be there and just envisioning what it would be like when they met each other. You know, it, to me, it was just a joyful experience. and beautiful, really fulfilling one that after that, I just wanted to do another one and another one. Mm, If people could only see your smile right now, (laughs) it was like, it was like you were back in the room with this absolutely giant smile as you were sort of like retelling that moment. Um, That smile is what everyone needs to feel right now. And I think especially now, you know, like it's, it's become, it was hard before. And I think it's harder right now. You know, we're, we're moving through this bizarre aberrant window of time right now where we're all stuck inside you know as we're having this conversation where you are you've literally just (laughs) kind of gone back into almost a full lockdown and you know if we're having trouble creating these moments and experiences and relationships and understanding what are the prompts what are the questions and when that happens now you know where we're sort of we're forced into trying to make this all happen in more of a virtual domain that also really changes things. I mean, it was interesting. You came out with with um, we should get together. I guess it was the beginning of this year, which January, yeah, right. Which was like, okay, so this is the guidebook. This is the the blueprint, the master plan <laughs> for like all you, all of us adults who like can't figure it out. I'm gonna walk you through it all. And then 2020 hits, and then you kind of came out with like this second thing, like, hey, wait. <laughs> There's you know like things are weird. Like we're in this like crazy upside down world here's something, here's, here's more guidance. I'm curious about that. Yeah. I had a number of people reach out to me when we should get together, came out and they were like, Kat, like I need help with friendship. But like, to be honest, like I don't read books. Like, can you just tell me what to do? Like, just tell me, like, I believe that, I believe that you did the research. I trust you, but just like, give me things to do. And I was like, (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny. I was like, okay. And there was also the additional constraint of we can't meet up. And as a designer, and any designer knows this, like constraints are where creativity comes from. Like, sure, you can be creative with like, just like no constraints, like you can do anything, but it's actually much more creative and and interesting when you have a very unusual constraint. And 
that's the thing that has fascinated me the most about this year is like the constraint of like, how do we maintain our relationships and connections when we can't see each other and it's not safe to be indoors together and uh, we have to do it from afar. And so the addendum connected from afar was kind of born out of those two sets of things. So one, the constraints and two people being like, just give me things to do. Oh my God, I've already baked 900 loaves of sourdough bread. Just, I need a different thing to do. (laughs) And I want to feel close to my friends. So that's really what that is from is to say like, what if we took away the excuse of like, I don't know what to do and I'm out of ideas. And it's like, actually, here's six months of weekly ideas that will help you feel closer to your people, even if you cannot see them face to face. Now you kind of have no excuses. <laughs> I like to challenge people as a coach and, a, and as a facilitator. I'm like, I would like you to step a little bit outside of your comfort zone and actually try this thing that is within your capacity. And if you don't like that one, flip the page and do the next one. You know, And so it really comes from a place of taking the things that are the best at cultivating connection, whether it's expressions of intimacy, vulnerability, appreciation, basically all the things in the five love languages, you know, it's like whether it's quality time or words of affirmation, like there's different, all of that's kind of sprinkled in there. And to say like, these are things that you can do from literally any distance with someone that you care about if you want to feel closer to them. Yeah. And it makes so much sense. I mean, it's because I think a lot of people struggle and and maybe also don't believe that you can get the same thing when you are not geographically in the same place together, when you're not in the same room together. I've experienced this in an interesting way with the podcast. You know, For six years, we recorded only in person in the studio in New York City. Because my firm belief was that we could never recreate the safe space, the container, the, the intimacy, the trust in the virtual space. And you know, very quickly, I had to make a decision. Either we shut down or we try. You know, there was a new constraint. There was a whole new set of constraints. And so we did a lot of experimentation. And what I learned was really, really surprising, which is, yeah, I still don't believe that we can go 100% to what it was like to just be in person in a room with someone else. But it's so much better than I thought it could be. You know, I, I think you really, you understand how do we function differently with this new set of not just constraints, but also possibilities. You know, and I think that that is, um, you know, as you described it, the design side of this, which is to say, okay, so instead of, well, this sucks, like everything is shut down, you know, what if the reframe is, okay, here's a new set of constraints. Constraints breed creativity. What can we create under this new paradigm? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really the opportunity of this moment. It really is. It's. It's to say how, not just like, oh, like cliche, how can we make the best of it? But actually, what can we do now that we thought we couldn't do before? And that it can actually give us a different sense of appreciation and perspective that wasn't possible to have before without this constraint. Yeah. So you have created a number of communities um, all the way back from AmeriCorps through so many different, through Better Than Small Talk, Bay Area Black Designers. Um, all with different intentions in different communities. More recently, you've taken all of these lessons and sort of like looked at this moment in time and created this thing called Connection Club, which our producer, Lindsay, is is a member of and just loves, loves, loves participating in this, has grown and learned and had such a joyful experience. Tell me more about this. Where does it come from and what's the intention behind it? So Connection Club came from... Again, it was one of the creations born out of how do I design for a connection in a time where people cannot get together, 
you know, they cannot see each other. And we're also experiencing a certain level of digital overload, honestly. Like we're all attached to our devices all day long and our Zooms and our screens. And so Connection Club is a chance to, while we do meet over Zoom, it's a chance to temper that with an analog sense of creativity and play and fostering a friendship or relationship in your life with intention and purpose. And also saying, you know, if you are needing more connection in your life or you want to make more new friends or have meaningful conversations and you don't know where to go, this is also a place to get it. So the first half hour of the time that we meet, we're actually, after we say hello, and then we turn off our cameras and we spend that time in the practice of writing. And that writing time is a chance to be like, push your computer away, get a piece of paper, get your pens or get your art supplies and use that to write a letter on a piece of paper that you will send in the mail to someone that you care about and that you want to foster a closer relationship with. And using the ritual of writing to, whether it's the same person or different people, to nurture those connections in a way that doesn't require us to be tethered to our devices. Um, some people also use it to make that time for journaling or for making art or for doing the things that we all say we want to do, but we never have time to do it. There's accountability here in the fact that we meet at these times and we agree to do at this time the thing that we say is important to us. And then in the second half hour, if you want to meet more people, you want to have close connections, you want to build a sense of friendship with other people who you know value connection too, like here they are all in a room together and everyone's really sweet and open-hearted. And so that is what Connection Club is. It has truly been one of the balms for this stressful time that we're all in. It is sweet. It is relaxing. It is like super low-key and a really beautiful moment to experience a lightweight, very low-key, uh, easy access to connection and to feel supported and also nurturing your own friendships in your own life at the same time. Yeah, I love that. I love the way that um, you structured it also in that the generative introverted time comes first. Yes. And then the extroverted connection time is sort of like the optional second half. Yes. Because if you think about almost every other experience that we move into, it's the opposite. Yes. Right? You have to kind of like, especially if you're more introverted, you have to kind of endure okay. you know, <laughs> the, the opening extroverted onslaught long enough so you kind of get to like the more generative fun activities or whatever it may be. That's on purpose. I, I, I the designer, I, I kind of figured that was very much intentional. Um, and, uh, and I also love that a lot of the, the sort of like generative uh, introverted creative work that you do in the beginning is also connected in some meaningful way to um, acts of connection or acts of, you know, like writing a letter to someone else, if that's what you're up to. Sort of like, uh, you know, it's checking a lot of boxes. It's a beautiful design. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And as an introvert who has endured thousands of hours of extrovert-focused gatherings, uh, I purposely wanted to make a space that says, you know, introverts come first this time. Sometimes we need like a little ramp on. It takes a little time to warm up before we're ready to talk. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I'm raising my hand right there beside <laughs> you with all of that. I mean, you um, you write about what you describe as sort of like the four challenges of friendship, hypermobility, busyness, sort of a blending with family um, and, and kind of like surface level um, conversation. And I think what we're going through now kind of allows us to revisit those things because everybody is having to remap those things, right? So it's sort of like, okay, so how can I remap those in a way which supports deeper relationships? You know, because it's, 
it's all getting broken no matter what. I didn't ask for this, but I have to break all of the all of the structures that created these things. So how do I want to reassemble the pieces in a way which, at least for the time being, allows me to maybe flourish, maybe even more than I did before? And then in quote after times, you know, like how is how can I maybe sustain this? You know, or does that lead to even deeper relationships when we can actually port some of this? back to face-to-face, but then maybe some things I don't want to port back, you know, to the way it's not about like getting back to the way things were. It's like, how do we recreate a new future that takes what we've learned now and keeps building and making things better, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we have this opportunity to do right now is to say, what can be new right now? How can we let go and adapt and experiment and try this? And then really then in that after time, whenever it comes, whether it's six months or a year or two years, who knows, how can we then take everything that we've learned in this process and that we've uh, assumed was the only quote unquote normal way to be from before and actually have something better, more fulfilling tomorrow? Yeah, that is the aspiration. Um you know, so one of the things that's happened this year that's really turned the world upside down is the pandemic. I think the other thing that's happened in the U.S. at least is um, a rapidly growing awareness of inequity, especially around race this year. Um, there's been inequity, gender, sexual orientation, race, uh, ageism, ableism for generations and generations. But I feel like this year, inequity around race and racism um, and systems yeah. of oppression has really come to the fore. And I feel like this conversation also is deeply relevant to that, right? Because a big part of, I think, you know, we're together yet alone. We're, we're so, we're so sort of broken into isolated communities that exist in the same geographic area, yet don't often interrelate in ways where we can actually really know people, let alone know ourselves and understand our roles um, in community. And part of this, I think, is also, you know, do we have friendships with people who aren't like us? You know, and do we have a depth of friendships with people who aren't like us that would allow us to actually really know them and really know their lives and really know their fears and concerns and struggles and hopes and aspirations? So I think a lot of what we're talking about here, you know, it's valuable in the context of, well, you know, it, it makes all of our lives richer, but it's also, I think there's another layer to it in this moment too, which is a call to action, right? To move beyond just trying to build new friendships with people who look like us and believe like us and feel like us and take a next step, you know, which may be uncomfortable for a lot of people, but so important, especially now. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people, you know, myself included, who don't necessarily think that the best of times were in the past. Uh. <laughs> As a Black queer woman in America, I would love a lot of things to change. And there are a lot of things that can be so much better than they have been in this country when it comes to inequity. And so would be delighted to say, uh, no, America, like, let's not go back to that. This is actually the chance to make it a hell of a lot better. And like, can we do that now? Now that everybody gets it, or most people get it, or a lot more people get it, can we please work on that, you know, instead of going back? Because there's a lot of us who don't necessarily want to go back to that sleep mode yeah. where there's just been too much suffering for too long. There's actually a chance to like change that. 
Yeah, I mean, right when when sort of like the bigger structures get broken in a really big public way, um, yeah, then assembling those pieces differently, um, and and I think also where you have a whole lot of people who have benefited from the way that it was for a, a really long time, awakening to their own benefit. You know, it's interesting too that process when we think about like within the context of the conversation around um, adult friendships and adult sort of like friendship love. It's almost like when we think about how to step into relation now with people who don't look like us, um, if I'm a white person and you know, like I, I, I really need to and want to build friendships with people who don't look like me, who don't see the world like me, part of that, part of knowing them requires me to also know me better. Right, because in relation we know ourselves. We know not just others better, but ourselves better, and that can be scary, because it may mean that I have to own parts of myself that are dark, and that I'm not happy with. And I wonder mm-hmm. if sometimes that's what stops people from doing that work is because it a mirror gets held up really quickly to the parts of yourself that you don't like, um, and that really. Uh, are calling out for change and people just don't want to deal with that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. There's no healing on the outside without healing on the inside too. And if you move forward in the world, wanting to create that healing externally or to create that relationship externally, there has to be that mutual reflection, that mutual work on the inside to say, you're going to have that relationship with you, who you are. You're going to have that healing if you need it or that self-acceptance. If you learn something about yourself and you're like, wow, that's really challenging. Do I like that? Do I want that? Will I keep that? Will I transform that? And how can I love that at the same time, even if I'm changing it or even if I'm keeping it, even if it's not perfect, but it has to happen on the inside and the outside at the same time. It really does. And being a friend to yourself is just as vital and more important than just saying you want to be a friend to other people. Otherwise, at some point, like the strings are going to start to unravel if you don't take that time to look inside and also to be there with who you are on the inside too. Mm, yeah. I mean, coming full circle to the notion of a design thing or human-centered design, you know, it always starts with empathy. And sometimes we have to take that empathic skill and look not only at the outside world and those around us, but we have to turn it inside and really understand. Because I think so often we're we're fiercely disconnected mm. from our own sense of self and our own sense of feeling and our own sense of beliefs and values. That yeah, if we, we want to not just redesign a world from you know like the outside in, but um, from the inside out first, we have to do that work of knowing our inside. Have to. Have to. Yeah. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So hanging out here in this container of a good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To me, living a good life means feeling completely capable, able, and ready to create what you want to see in the world and to be who you want to be in the world. Mm, Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.